Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 28. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You could shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, better than Amazon. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey, and to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in, and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram and TikTok at impact.fashion.nyc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I sit down with a woman who chose the freelance route in fashion. She shares why owning a brand was not for her, why freelancing as a fashion designer has worked so well, the types of brands that are willing to hire freelance designers, and how we can all overcome self-doubt. Heidi, that's S-E-W, by the way, as she's known, has carved out a really interesting and pragmatic approach to a fashion career. I thoroughly enjoy talking shop with her, and I hope you'll find this peek behind the fashion curtain enlightening. You know, looking back as when I was like a really little kid, I don't have the air quote typical upbringing that I feel like a lot of fashion people remember of like playing dress up with their dolls. Like I wasn't into Barbies or really anything. Um... The first memory that I have of really being into fashion was when I got into high school and my mom, for some reason, something triggered that I was like, mom, I want to learn how to use that sewing machine. And she showed me just literally how to, how to, how to do a straight stitch. She didn't show me how to follow a pattern. She didn't, and I don't think she knew a ton. Like she, she had, um, that's a lie. Actually, my mom was a very good seamstress, but she just, I don't know, for whatever reason, she just kind of showed me the basics. So I took the machine and I ran with it. I was really into thrifting and I would buy like old things and I would kind of cut them up and mishmash them together. And that's my first memory of really feeling like I love this fashion stuff. Um, but I came from, full disclaimer, I came from a very business oriented family. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur and a businessman and like being a fashion designer was a like into being a Hollywood actress. It was just, it always just sort of felt like, like my parents never poo-pooed my dreams, but it just always felt like that's not something you actually do, right? That's not a career path you go down. You don't go to college for fashion design. And so it was just, it was just kind of a non-discussion. Um, and so through, you know, various things in my, in my life, in my household, in my upbringing, I was like, well, I go to school and I do business, right? That's what you do. 
And so I went to school and I did business. Um, I didn't last super long. I, I didn't feel very at home in the business school. I was like, I don't think these are my people. Long story short, a friend of mine who I met in college was studying graphic design. This is back in 2000. So graphic design was kind of like, not everybody knew exactly what it was, right? Um, learning how to use the computer to design. And I was like looking at the project she was doing and I was like, that looks really cool. And so I started studying that. I, I went to a very non, a school that didn't even have a fashion program, went to the University of Denver. I started studying graphic design, didn't really tell my parents. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of like dropped it real casually. Like, oh, I switched my major. And my dad was like, what? Um, I had to explain to him and justify to him what that degree entailed. And they were not in love with it, but I kept on pursuing. Um, for my senior thesis, I combined my graphic design skills with my marketing degree, which I minored in, and I put together a fashion brand. I was like, okay, I'm going to use my graphic design to create the hang tags and the labels and build the website. And then I'll do the marketing component of it to build a business plan and all that stuff. That was like my real, besides, you know, casual sewing in, in high school and making some of my own clothes. That was like my big first push into like air quote, real fashion design. Um, so I created the whole collection and I put everything together and I, I presented it as, as my senior thesis. And after that, um, again, long story short, I kept sewing, kept making stuff, started doing like local fashion shows and local markets. Again, this is Denver, Colorado, so nothing like amazing, but hey, you do what you can. And ultimately with that, I was able to land my first job working as a fashion designer. No degree, but just having that base experience of like doing my own thing. And I was also really strong on the computer, which helped a tremendous amount. Um, having my own brand was, was okay, but it um, I quickly learned that it wasn't right for me. I did fairly well. I got Let me my cut stuff you off for a into... second. You said that you yeah, landed sorry. your first job as a designer that was in your own company or that was working for someone else? Working for someone else. Oh, okay. So at what yeah. point from when you were working for someone else, did you decide to go into your own company? I had my own company first. Oh, okay. So you, so you were doing both thesis, at the same time. Essentially, yes. My senior thesis kind of turned into my own fashion brand. Um, I was working as a receptionist on the side. Like I had a day job doing all of that. Right. But I was like building my brand and then I hated my receptionist job. So I quit and I was like, I'm going to go all in on my brand. I'm going to make this work. And I was young and I had, you know, no real overhead in many senses, right? No family, no kids or anything. And so I went all in on my own brand and I very quickly learned that having your own brand is not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> it was, <laughs> um, a lot of work. Not so much on the design side, right? A lot of just logistics, a lot of sales, a lot of marketing and promotion and customer service and all that stuff. Um, I grew it to a good little bit. I, I, in my, my second, third year, I made $40,000 and yeah, in like, this is in 2005, six. $40,000 in sales uh, or $40,000 in profit? In sales. Okay. Not bad for two. But not bad. So like a 20 something year old that had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I wasn't loving it. It mm. just felt like a slog. And also of that $40,000, as you know, all that money goes right back into the business right. to make more product, et cetera. So, so in the meantime, I was kind of starting to look for jobs and I found this random posting on Craigslist for a fashion design job and I applied for it and I didn't really hear back. And then three months later, my phone rang and they were like, Hey, you applied for this job. And I just really had like my own fashion brand stuff to show. And I had my graphic design skills. I was really good on the computer. 
And they were like, we think you'd be a really good match. Um, and another opportunity has come up within the company. I went in for an interview and I got the job and I was like, okay, I'm working in the fashion industry. And so I was designing and I was doing a lot of th the number one reason they actually hired me was because my Adobe Illustrator skills were so strong. I could draw fashion flats and I could create repeating patterns. And that was a really big asset, especially back in that time. That was like 2007, eight. Mm. Um, and although I still think there's a, a gap in what fashion schools are teaching students in terms of the, the software skills that they actually need to know, um, it was really bad back then. And so they were really desperate for people that had those skills. And I also had this excitement and this eye for fashion. I had had my own brand. So I was doing both in tandem. Then the 2008 financial crisis hit. Things got crazy. I wound up shutting down my brand because I, was, I wasn't loving it anymore. And I was just, I was like, this is not for me. Um, I lasted in that fashion job for less than two years. Um, I made it through the economy crash and, and a bunch of people got let go. I, I was kept on. Um, but it, I was overworked and severely underpaid. I was getting paid $22,000 a year oh. and working my tail off. Um, and I asked and, and had essentially negotiated promised raises that never came, all those things, you know? And I was like, this is, this is not, this is not working for me. I'm feeling like burnt out is super toxic. Like I was crying a lot, super high anxiety in the office. Um, and so I quit <laughs> again, young, slightly reckless. And I thought I'm going to, I'm going to freelance <laughs> again. Now we're in like 2009. Um, I hadn't seen anybody that had been freelancing. I had seen these permalancers who are coming in office and like working these air quote, like temp jobs, 40 hours a week on site air quote freelancer. Um, but I was like, I'm going to, you know, I had friends who had done graphic design in my degree and they were freelancing and working with multiple clients. And I was like, I'm going to do that. So I quit and it took me a year to figure out how to do anything. I literally made $0 my first year. Um, and then I started getting traction. I started getting clients and it started growing. By year three, I had tripled my previous salary and ultimately grew to earning six figures a year, um, working with multiple clients, working a comfortable schedule, projects I loved. Um, fast forward, that's not what I teach people how to do, but that's the that's the... That's the beginning of the story of how everything got started uh, um, for me and my freelancing career. So when you were taking when you were taking these freelancing jobs, was that in fashion design or in graphic design or in like fashion. a combination of the two? Yeah, so it was all core fashion design. However, I did ultimately wind up extending the projects into graphics. So I would do hang tag and label design for them in addition to the product design. Um, I would take a lot of projects where I designed the collection and then I would pitch, hey, let me put together a proposal for doing the photo shoot and laying out the catalog. I had done some catalog design in my day job. So I was constantly like looking at ways of like, okay, how can I add on another thing, right? One of the strategies I teach my students is when you get a client, you do that first project, you're always thinking about what's the next thing in line, ask for that work, right? right. And so for me, it was like, okay, let me do the labels, hang tags and the packaging. All right, now the, 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 the collection's done. Let me do the the photo shoot and the catalog layout, um, right? Just asking. So I was able to expand in that, but it was all with fashion brand companies. I didn't go out to do any like random miscellaneous graphic design gigs. Okay, all of that makes sense. And what you're really pointing to is this very bifurcated way that the fashion industry is set up, which is mm -hmm. basically if you want to be a fashion designer, you have two choices. You can either start your own company 
that's what mm-hmm. I did for a lot of different reasons. And that's what mm-hmm. you initially start uh, tried. Um, or you can go work for somebody else and then try to kind of climb the corporate ladder type within that space mm-hmm. for whatever mm-hmm. reason. I don't know why this is, but fashion attracts a lot of mentally unstable people. Um, and I'm not really sure why that is, but I, I think it's also the type of thing that because fashion has a reputation for being kind of mean and nasty, there is a license to mm. be mean and nasty because mm. it's protected. Um, and and going the corporate route can be very stressful. Um, and, and like, it happens to be that I had one corporate experience that was super, super positive. And mm. it was a super positive experience. And after that, I was like, no, I can't. I can't do this. Like I, I can't do the, the working for someone else. Like you said, the pay is not there. Like it's the, the pay is like very concentrated at the highest levels and it's, um, you know, 80 hours a week and, and all mm-hmm. for something that doesn't line up, but you have kind of carved for yourself this third niche, which a lot of people don't think about, which is this idea of freelancing and fashion, which is really interesting because when I think about like it would never occur to me to to outsource the design of my collection because I'm a fashion designer. That's what I want to be doing. I mean, outsource every, all all the other stuff that you said around it, right? Like the sales, the marketing, all of that that um that I'm working on outsourcing. But it's it, taking that core bit of a fashion company and outsourcing it. That sounds like something that to me, like a lot of companies would be hesitant to do. So if you're approaching them as a freelancer, what's your pitch there? How do you convince them that this is something that they should trust you with and that you can contribute on? And and how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So when it comes to freelancing as a air quote designer per se, right, you can freelance and do any part of the process. You can just Hey, let me work with you, Rivki, as a small independent designer to do your tech packs or to do your pattern making or like whatever it is, right? Um, but the design component, it starts with what types of brands you're ultimately going to be working with. There are a lot of brands that will not outsource that component um, for a long list of reasons, right? It's too close to their chest. And they they are located in a fashion hub like New York or LA or London, and they have access to a tremendous amount of talent that is willing to come into the office and work full time for them for a lower rate. Like there's a long list of reasons. Okay, so there's what I call the glamorous brands, and the glamorous brands are any of those brands that people have likely heard of. They're located in big fashion hubs. The opportunity to get a freelance opportunity, especially for design with those types of brands, is like slim to none. Okay. But there are so many other brands out there beyond these glamorous brands, right? Um, The two other big categories I talk about are middle America brands, which are the brands that are located in random places in middle America. Um, They're usually small to medium-sized companies. No one's really ever heard of them, but they make everyday clothes for everyday people and their product is distributed. It's out there. It's just not these big labels that we've heard of. Okay. So that's category number one, where there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more detail into that. And then category number two is small independent startup brands. So, and I think we all kind of know what those are, right? It could be anything from one person in their home office, like trying to start something to maybe a small team of businessmen who've got some savvy and some money, but they don't really know about the fashion industry and they've got an idea right? And they need help on various components. So the middle America brands is where I found my sweet spot. Um, I worked with a lot of lifestyle, um, some yoga, some active um, lifestyle and golf and corporate apparel. 
So it's not the super sexy stuff, but for me, I didn't really mind that. For me, I loved the design process and the product development process and like going from an idea to a finished product. Like just the process of that was really fascinating and fun for me. So these brands, like I said, are often located in random places, not fashion hubs. They might not have first access to a tremendous amount of talent locally. They also might not, for whatever reason, depending on how the company is set up and structured, they might have certain segments inside the company where it could be hard to justify having a full-time designer, having a full-time um, product developer, right? Having a full-time sourcing agents, agent. And so for them, it can make a lot more sense to outsource parts or even all of those processes based on how their business is structured. Okay. So that's, um, it's typically not very glamorous work. And your chances of finding super glamorous as far as like air quote design aesthetic glamorous as a freelancer, I'll be blunt, it's pretty slim, right? As I talked about before. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of work in that space. And then if we go to the startup space, there are so many brands out there who are getting started. And in one way or another, it doesn't matter if they're like you and they have a background in fashion and they understand and they can do the design, there might be parts of the process that for whatever long list of reasons, you just don't have the time, you don't love it, you're actually not the greatest at it, that you're like, yeah, let me outsource this to a freelancer. Um, and then, like I said earlier, there's these other startups, independent small brands that, um, which was, I worked with one, maybe like one and a half startups during my time. I didn't love working with startups. There's a lot of handholding, especially mm -hmm. working with someone who doesn't have experience in the industry. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, these startups that are started by people who they're like, I have an idea for a product that solves a problem or fills some type of niche. I've got some business savvy and I understand like that component of it. And somehow I've got money through whatever different channels, but I have no idea like how to design a collection or how to think about trims or fabrics or any of those things, right? MOQs and, and finding factories and, and designing and all the logistics of that. So they need a tremendous amount of help in in the design and often throughout the entire development process. So those that's are the two big types of categories. Way. That's such an interesting way of looking at it because I get a lot of people who reach out to me who say, you know, I want to, uh, you know, I'll very often get DMs or emails or things like that. By the way, if you ever want to reach me this way, email me because DMs get lost. Um, but it's <laughs> like, it's always, it's always like, um, I have this idea for a collection or I have this idea for a category and mm. want to start this company, but I don't know but exactly like you said, I don't know how to how to design something. I don't know how to construct something. I don't know how the seams should be in fact mm -hmm. like that. And I totally get in that space how outsourcing and hiring a designer would make sense. It's in incredibly, it's literally the exact opposite of how my brain works because I started a company because I wanted to design. I am a, people ask me, oh, what are you? I'm a fashion designer. It's mm -hmm. not, not a business. I mean, I am technically a business owner, but I don't describe myself as a business owner. I describe myself as a fashion designer. And then I started a business because I wanted to get my designs out into the world. So the idea of being like, okay, we just need to get this made is so the opposite of how I think. Very often mm -hmm. when people do reach out to me and say, oh, I have this idea, you know, how would I go about making this? I tell them, take a sewing and patterning class. Do that. Like, make sure that you know at least enough to, to be able to hire someone out. And this is a this is a very different way of looking at it, which it, which works for a lot of people. And I would imagine that it works for the freelancers also, especially because you keep mentioning that, you know, these types of companies that work well for freelancing are kind of located in random places. I would imagine mm -hmm. this work has to be happening remotely. It's all remote. Yeah. I mean, 
I promote and and stand behind opportunities where you are provided the privilege of working remotely almost exclusively. If you happen to be located in the same place or if they want to like fly you out for a day or whatever to do some fittings, um, you know, and you go in periodically for something, that's great if convenience just lines up or and or they have the budget to to bring you out for various on-site meetings. Great. But the work as a whole can all be done remotely. And I say that pretty adamantly because our industry has trained people that air quote freelancers are working 40 hours a week on site. They're working and looking and showing up and acting like an employee. They're not getting compensated like one. They're not getting paid time off. They're not getting benefits, right? They're not getting their taxes paid for. Right. They're 1099 um, workers. Yeah. And it's it's abusive. It's technically illegal in many places to require someone to show up, to require someone to adhere to your schedule nine to five on location and not compensate them as an employee in many places is technically illegal. Yeah, I know in New York. Um, I feel you can't very do that. heated about this. Yeah. Um, but brands do it all the time because it's such a competitive industry that people are willing to do it and they just get away with it. Right. Um, and they know that if they try to stand up to that, well, they're just going to lose the opportunity. So again, there's all these air quote glamorous brands that are well-known and these big hubs, and they're just going to get away with that work. And it's, I, I, you know, I, I would love to change the industry on that level. And my effort is to at least just educate people and, and impact people to show them, you don't have to do this. You can do this another way. And yeah, you're probably not going to negotiate it with the Gap, right? Or Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever, Ralph Lauren. Um, but although uh, we have students that have worked with big name brands, one of my um, students who I just interviewed on my podcast has done some freelance work for anthropology so that it can happen. It's, it's less common. Um, but anyways, yes, remote, 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 remote. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because you, you had mentioned this before that like, you're not going to get, like you said, those big name glamour brands. And I think that this is where each person needs to do their soul searching of mm -hmm. what am I in fashion for? Because mm -hmm. if you're in fashion to be, to have a certain glamorous level lifestyle, you know, and to say that you work for one of these, you know, large, mm -hmm. well-known companies, then to a certain extent, you do kind of have to pay your dues and sure. you do, and you have to, you know, go through all of the abuse that exists there <laughs> on so many levels, so but many, like, so, so you, if that's your goal, then yes, there is a certain almost hazing process that happens through that. Mm -hmm. But if your mm -hmm. goal is to just be designing and to be putting your own work out into the world, there are other ways to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's plenty of small independent brands that are doing really awesome stuff, right? Again, it might not be this like air quote, glamorous runway, New York fashion week stuff, but it still can be really, really fun product. Right. Um, and there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity to, to do stuff that you're really passionate about, you know, and I'll just counter that with like, yeah, you are going to pay your, if you want that big glamorous name on your resume and your portfolio, um, I think we all know, or, or most of us in the industry know that the bigger, the brand name, the more glamorous it is typically the lower the pay, the harder they work you, the more, more toxic the environment. And also the less design work you're going to be doing. Very true. Very true. Yes. Which, because it's just coming down from these coveted positions at the top. 
that you can try and get an amount. I'm saying it's impossible, but there's very few positions and a million people vying for that. So it's just, it's really, really hard to get into a role, um, into one of these glamorous roles where you're actually doing the design. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. So when I hear freelance, I hear somebody who is pitching themselves to people, setting their prices, getting themselves clients and and all of that. Um, I would imagine that that's something that's very difficult for some people <laughs> to do because that requires a certain self-image, I would say, to, yeah. to put that out there. What are what, what's your feeling on all of that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is a very different process than you know what a lot of people are used to in terms of like let me set up my profile on linkedin and let me like submit my resume and cover letter and then let me go to the interview and I get the job and i'm good right um it does require some certain amount of confidence and backbone and leaning into the fear um, it's nerve wracking for sure uh you know i i don't freelance anymore i i um, stopped working as a freelancer back in 2019 as my online business grew and I didn't have the capacity to do everything. Um, but I still work with brands on brand partnerships and and um, sponsored type of content. And I send out pitches on that level. And I won't lie, even after my my whole freelance career and everything I've done, like I still get a little bit like nervous. I'm like, oh, I'm hitting send on this, right? So Here's what I want to say to people is that, yeah, you do have to pitch yourself. You do have to present yourself. You do have to air quote, sell yourself. It doesn't have to be scuzzy. It doesn't have to be gross. Um, and there's a certain amount of like taking a leap and a risk on yourself that you have to lean into. You have to lean into those fears and those doubts. And I hear this from, and I'll say women only because 98% of my audience is female. Um, I hear from women who are fresh out of fashion school. And I hear from women who have 10, 20 years of experience with this amazing resume and this amazing amount of, of work. And most of them are still like, uh, but I, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure I know enough. I'm not quite an expert. I don't have all the answers. Like the most amount of self-doubt you can imagine to go out as a freelancer. And I think one of the big reasons is that you can feel like you're going out on your own. And, and in a way, you very much are. You're not going into a team, right, where you've got coworkers and bosses and other people around you to help with everything. And so going into a freelance career, you can very much feel like, I have to be an expert at everything from initial design through the entire bulk, bulk production and development. And I have to have all the answers from sourcing and pattern making and fitting and grading and da-da-da-da-da, right? All the things. And that's a tremendous amount of weight to put on anybody, Here's the reality. You don't, you can do the entire process. We have many students that do. Um, does it mean they do it exclusively by themselves? No. Does it mean that they have all the answers? No, nobody has all the answers. And the older we get, I think that the more we learn, it's okay to not know everything, right? And to admit mm -hmm. that. Um, hey, you know what? That's a great question. Let me do a little research to get back to you. That's a great answer, right? Um, and so, so yeah, you can do the entire process, but you also don't have to. We have many students who just do the design and then they hand it off from there. We have students who exclusively do tech packs. Um, literally, that's all they do is tech packs or pattern making. If that's their love, I do pattern making and grading um, or sourcing specialists or just general consultation on maybe sustainability or something like that, right? So you, you can literally start freelancing with one or two skills. You can 
and that's actually what I recommend you do, and or you get really, really tight on the market that you're you're freelancing to, um, meaning like the category, right? So we have the one example I always love using because it's so niche and specific. One of our very successful students literally does women's cashmere sweaters. That's all she does. Hey, if it works. So niche, but so many brands come to her and they say, we want you. We don't want just any sweater designer. We want you because you know cashmere, right? right. And she does more parts of the process. She doesn't just do design, right? So as you get more niche with your category, you tend to go a little bit more broad with your services. Whereas the other example that I mentioned, like exclusively doing tech packs, um, that freelancer does tech packs for a wider range of categories. I'm not talking like denim and lingerie and handbags and shoes, right? That's quite broad, but more like active athleisure lifestyle yoga, that type of thing, right? There's still a lot of crossover in these like complementary type of categories, but the service offering is so, so, so specific. And so as soon as I tell people, like, you don't have to know everything. You literally don't. We have one student who, um, she does the entire process for, she does men's golf and lifestyle and she does everything except sourcing. She goes, I don't source. I just don't, I don't want to, I don't have the contact. So, so that's how she pitches it. So you can really kind of set it up how you want. And that typically is an immediate confidence boost to people of like, oh, okay. I don't have to do everything. Right. I don't have to have all the answers because again, nobody ever does. Why do you think we feel that pressure to have all the answers? That's a great question. I don't know. I'm not even sure I can give you an answer. I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, f f I can speak from my own personal experience. It is 1 million percent of pressure we put on ourselves. Nobody mm -hmm. else puts that pressure on you except you. So hopefully that in itself makes you feel a little bit better. Um, why we put that pressure on ourselves in the first place, I'm going to say it's likely because it can feel uncomfortable if you don't know the answer, right? You want right. to you want to look smart, you want to look knowledgeable, and when you don't have the answer, it kind of you can feel like a deer in headlights like, "Uh, right, I wasn't expecting that question or oh my gosh, what do I say?" And again, a great answer. You know what? That's a great question. Let me do a little research and get back to you. Every person I've ever talked to is fine with that answer. And then you do the research and you get back to them, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's tricky when you're in that freelance situation because because like you said, you don't have that infrastructure of the rest of the office around you. There's yeah. also a certain expectation. When I start a new job, they will train me, right? They'll let sure. me know what it is that I need to know. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to a company and saying, hi, I can do this thing, <laughs> to a certain extent, you better be able to do the thing, which is why, mm -hmm. like what you're saying, this idea of focusing on one thing, you know, broadening in one way, you know, like you said, either niching down in a category or just in one service mm -hmm. allows you to say, you know, I can do this thing and then being able to deliver on that thing. That thing. Yeah. Which, which makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, when it comes to this whole idea of, of confidence and, and confidence in your work and this self doubt and everything, it's, I think that this is something that women struggle with a little bit more than mm -hmm. men. Mm-hmm. How, what are your feelings on that? Oh, I mean, that's a fact. I would say that's pretty much literally a fact. And, you know, um, I uh, I think I'm going to say this accurately. I can't, I'm, I'm trying to remember where the various places I've read this over the years, but it ultimately comes down to the chemical makeup in your body, 
right? Like I'm quite sure. And I think this is from Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. He talks about, they do all these studies of like the amount of testosterone present in somebody and higher levels of testosterone, which we all know is typically going to be in a male, sometimes can be in a female for whatever long list of reasons, um, maybe naturally or via supplements. Um, higher levels of testosterone lead to higher levels of confidence. I did and not know that. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure. If I'm butchering this, oh my gosh, but I'm quite confident in that the sheer hormonal makeup of our body you Googling this for me. <laughs> I am. I am Googling this because if this um, is. And um, it might not be testosterone directly to confidence, but but maybe more like risk taking. Right. And and so from birth, naturally, we are either predestined or not for certain types of behavior. And if I butchered this, we're, we're going to edit it out. <laughs> hold on one second. I'm looking it up because that would actually yeah. be amazing. Um. Uh, tipping point. Hold on. Oh, and I don't know if you should. I I'm quite sure it was that book. Hold on. Malcolm Gladwell. Testosterone. Yeah, here we go. Um, I found it on James Clear's website. I didn't find the Malcolm Gladwell one, but James Clear specifically says higher levels of testosterone in both men and women lead to increased feelings of confidence. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Testosterone makes men more confident in their instincts. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, innately by sheer like hormonal makeup of our bodies, men are predestined for this type of behavior and women are predestined for this type of behavior. So it's nothing to feel bad about. Um, and I think, you know, if you go back to like hunter gatherer ages, it's, the women would stay and protect the family and the men had to have this high level of confidence and risk-taking to go out and get the food and chase the bear, right? Or whatever it is. So if you look back at, at like from an evolution perspective, it makes total sense. Yeah, that actually does. That is, I'm totally going to read up more on this because that is, <laughs> that is very, very cool. Yeah. Um, tell me about your online business. Tell me about So Heidi. Tell me about how all of this comes together with the work that you do. Yeah, great question. Um, we do a lot. So I have a podcast called Fashion Designers Get Paid, where we talk to guest experts, we talk to successful freelancers. Um, I do some solo episodes all about how you can work for yourself in, in fashion and get paid, make some more money um, while doing what you love. I have a somewhat neglected YouTube channel. That's where I got my start way back in 2009. And I've got a really good base of subscribers. And I've really haven't had the capacity to super support it over the years, but there's still a tremendous amount of valuable content on there. A lot of it's evergreen. Um, a lot of it is around some of these base skills that we need to know to work in fashion, tech packs, fashion flats, all that sort of thing, um, how product development works. Um, that was really how I started my whole online career and business was teaching people how to do Adobe Illustrator and tech packs and that stuff. So if you're looking to brush up on any of the skills, my YouTube channel is a, is a great resource. And then we've got a website, successfulfashiondesigner.com, where we publish blog posts regularly and content on various strategies in fashion, everything from portfolios to finding clients, to strategizing on Upwork, to um, pitching and price negotiation and all that sort of stuff as, as it relates to freelancing and, and a lot of the tangential uh, 
components beyond just freelancing. So those are the core platforms. I am active on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Um, and I've got a, a flagship course called Freelance Accelerator from Surviving to Thriving. We call it FAST. And inside that flagship program is where you can learn hands-on, step-by-step, all the strategies that you need to grow your freelance career from zero to ultimately wherever you want to want to take it. We have many, many students who have very much quit their full-time jobs and are making a substantial amount more of money as freelancers, setting their own schedule, you know, not working crazy hours, um, and have built some really, really tremendous careers. So those are all the the spaces online that I have available for people to check out and learn. That sounds really fantastic. We're going to make sure all of that is linked in the show notes. Um, I'm Thank just you. curious, you the, the the courses I'm assuming are geared specifically towards people who want to freelance in fashion. Would, would some of these skills kind of translate to if I wanted to freelance, let's say in graphic design or uh, in any other kind of field, or would you say stick to this just for your fashion people? I would stick to it just for fashion. So when I, you know, just like I encourage my students to niche down, in terms of their service and their category and what they're going to offer their, their clients. Um, at the end of the day, people want something that's specifically made for them most of the time. And so I very consciously did not build a general course or nor do I create content in general on freelancing. Now, can you go into it and apply all the strategies? Sure. But all the examples, all the reference point, all reference points, all the language, everything is very, very niche and specific to the fashion industry. So we market it and and we promote it and talk about it specifically as it relates to fashion. If you're a graphic designer and come to me and say, is this a good match for me? I'm going to tell you no. Yes, you can learn all the skills you need, but there's likely other programs out there that are more specific for graphic design that are going to be better for you. Yeah, I hear that. That that makes a lot of sense. And that's also, like you said, that niching down, that's what gets you usually uh, the best results. I want to yeah. end off with uh, where where we've been ending off uh, our conversations uh, for every episode. Uh, Heidi, I'd love to know, where do you think you've made the most impact? Yeah, that's a great question. And I knew it was coming and I thought about it a little bit. And we talked about it in today's conversation and it really comes down to changing the not necessarily changing the way people think but giving them something new or different to think about right so mm-hmm. like in fashion a lot of people they think right my option is to work this 9 to 5 or let's be honest like a 7 to 11 mm-hmm. 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. right um or have my own brand and so if nothing else just educating people on hey there is this other path that you can go down and still do the work that you love and also get all these other benefits. Um, is it hard? Yeah. Nothing in fashion is easy. Nothing really good in life is easy. Um, it's, it takes work. It takes some courage, but just letting people know that there's this alternative option. I do believe is where I've had the biggest impact. I've heard that from a lot of people in, in our community, um, students and beyond just like what I didn't know I could do this. So just that little, giving someone that light bulb moment um, feels really, really impactful. And and so I'm really proud to to get to do that work. Options are a wonderfully powerful (laughs) thing. Thank you so much for coming on today, Heidi. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rivki. It was lovely chatting with you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about So Heidi, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I spoke to Avital Levine, the Jewish meme queen, about using humor to overcome difficulties. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. 
The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 28 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 19 people listed by Oragu Note as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getolit.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nisa Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook and on TikTok as well at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.